Long hours, angry customers, smoke, dirt, and grime. But it's work, good paying work, and a steady paycheck. So when weighing the options, where's the break-even point? Hello and welcome to The Gamble, a podcast about the Southsiders who live and work in Bethlehem. I'm today's host, Kevin Kerner. The Gamble is a companion podcast for the upcoming documentary film Betting on Bethlehem, set for a May 2019 release. In this episode, I'm joined again by Casey Keyes for the second half of our conversation. Casey spent about three years as a poker dealer at Sands Casino Bethlehem. In this part of our discussion, Casey talks about what surprised him the most, the people inside the casino, and when he decided he had had enough. So what were some of the things that kind of surprised you the most about your experiences dealing? So one of the main and major surprises, I would say, was realizing what a sort of sad and dirty place the casino could be. And I, I, I use those terms, I don't use those terms lightly. So arriving and just doing the training where we would sit around the table and, and deal to one another, the casino seemed very clean and it seemed very it kind of lived up to the reputation that I think people sort of have in their mind for casinos, which is glamorous and kind of lots of money changing hands. And so the idea that there's a lot of money changing hands and a lot of rich people in and out kind of gives it this sort of um, this sort of luster, I think, in your imagination. And then spending some time around there, you realized that, you know, a lot of the people at the poker table, for instance, so when when you, if you're somebody who's going to play a lot of poker at the Sands, you would get a player's card and it would have your, like, you'd have a specific number and it would have your name on it. And then we would swipe these in a card reader on the table and they would show up on a little display that we could see that showed us the names of the people in the different seats. And this helped us to, like, refer to them by name if they liked that. And then, you know, that developed some rapport. But the, the other thing it did was keep track of how long they were sitting there. And we would, keep good track of this because you wouldn't want to be paying the rewards points to somebody who wasn't there. So even if they got up to go to the bathroom, you were supposed to put them on a hold. Uh, was, you know, God forbid, right? They get the quarter toward the sandwich. But um, what we would end up finding out is that people, I mean, and this was obvious to us anyways, that people were spending days on end playing cards. I mean, just days on end straight without really getting up to do anything more than go to the bathroom. And we even had a guy that I mentioned to you earlier that took his free drink cup and put it down under the table and urinated in it to save himself a 25 foot trip. And you know, this is, this was, they were really, really, did that happen at your table? It didn't happen while I was there. And so I got to see the uh, reaction to it, uh, which was interesting. But you know, what did happen to me, just to give an example of how the people like felt about missing so much as one hand was that we had a rule that said that if you weren't seated at your, at your spot on the table, when the cards were being dealt, that you were to be left out of the hand. So I had a guy at a table I was dealing in the middle of a busy night. Uh, I hadn't seen him before. I didn't recognize him. I recognized a lot of the people I dealt to over time just from the frequency they would play. He got up and walked away and started talking to his wife a good you know, couple feet from the table. So it looked to me that he was occupied and he, he wouldn't be in this hand. So I dealt him out. And anyway, that's what the rules would say to do. If somebody said to me, hey, deal me in, I just got to run over to the garbage can or something, of course I would deal them in, but he didn't say that. So he came back and he didn't have cards. And he, he act, he, his, he, his whole aspect kind of darkened and he looked at me and he says, where are my cards? I said, well, you know, you got up and walked away, so I skipped you this time. And this guy really lost his mind. He, he started yelling at me and he took his player's card out and threw it at me. And, uh, you know, I, 
when, when anything like this happened, you know, you had a little button on your display that showed where the players were with an S and you, it was for supervisor. So you press S and then somebody at the front desk should see that you need a supervisor. Mm -hmm. So there's nobody at the front desk. So I've got this guy like really angry and yelling at me and I've got to like yell floor. Anytime you have a problem, you have to yell floor. And then that brings a floor supervisor over to handle it. They ended up having to tell that guy to leave for the night because he was so incensed. But it just gave you this weird, this is one of the surprises that I'm getting at is that just how emotionally involved people could get in the game and, and how upset they would permit themselves to get to the point where this guy was a pretty mild example, but there were people who threw tantrums, who, who would cry, who would throw things, who would try to tear apart the cards and things like that. So that was really surprising. That and the amount of, say, you know, you'd get chips brought to your table just to get to the kind of filthy side of it. And the poker chips would eventually just become really encrusted in filth. So, you know, you should be able to break down a stack of 20 into five smaller stacks, depending on the denomination, four if they're 25 or above. And you'd get a stack of chips that you couldn't even cut down into stacks of five because they were glued to each other by, by grime. And stuff like that, you know, people who would order food at the table and kind of eat uh, chicken wings and then handle the cards and the cards would get so dirty that they'd jam the automatic shuffler and stuff like that, you know, and really kind of the guy also who urinated into the cup wouldn't be the first person who did something with involving bodily fluids. I mean, just things like that you don't expect. But, you know, once I think you put people in these situations where they're stressed, they're spending long periods of time that you really do start to see some of their worst sides. And that was definitely on display there. Do you think these the people who were spending hours or days at a time with that regular behavior, would they be there like every week doing that? Or would it just be, you know, they just needed to check out from their life for a while? You know, what was your Good sense? Were, these, were they employed? Do they have, you know, a home life? We used to speculate about this wildly, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, we all wanted to know. I, I was never somebody who got too close to the players because I was not that interested in poker in itself. Some of my friends on the staff really loved poker and they could and they played it themselves so they related to the players in a way that I didn't really so I would learn a lot of things about them through that and I would um but they would talk to me as well it wasn't as though I didn't have any relationship with them so there was a mix there there were some people who they were kind of just normal working people who had say maybe a middle class existence they had a wife kids and a job that they had to hold down and then you would see them get involved in poker and maybe some of them could manage that. Some of them it was just something that they did as a pastime and they could afford to do it and you know they took their losses into the bargain and it wasn't a big problem for them. But then we had others and we were even told in training, we were given a lot of training about gambling addiction and we were told that you know casinos have a way of you know making creating gambling addicts and really like making the gambling addicts in an area that where they arrive you know, way worse that, you know, within like say a 25, 50 mile radius that they really do have a profound effect on, on people's gambling habits. So we, we did have people who couldn't afford to lose the money or couldn't afford to spend the time, but did. And then you'd hear that, oh, you know, I'm getting a divorce or that, you know, I have, um, so we had a guy who he, his money was so wrapped up in poker and gambling that he had liens against him and things like this. One day he won one of our tournaments and because of the way the tournament money is awarded, it's it's done through official forms and things and the money is declared. He couldn't even be given the money because there was al there were already like legal claims upon it. So, you know, there, there was an interesting mix. There were also a lot of people that, you know, you got the impression or they would even tell you that, you know, they were spending in annuity payments. They, they had, um, you know, there were, there were guys who owned companies that they didn't even 
that somebody else was maybe running for them because you got the impression from some of the people, especially the people who played more regularly and at higher limits, that they had money to burn, that they, they, they sort of had like a large amount of money that they could just spend all of their time here because I don't know. I mean, I would wonder where they got their money and how because I felt like I never saw them do anything other than play poker. You know, I'd go, I'd leave after an eight-hour shift. After about a year and a half, I switched to the day shift, so I was working nine to five. I'd go in from nine to five and see somebody who was there the whole entire time I was there, go home, go about my life, go to bed, come back the next day at nine, and there they'd be. So I'd wonder, you know, how are you supporting this lifestyle? I never really had a clear answer on a lot of them. What do you think was kind of the effects of the casino and whether, you know, culturally or just economically, uh, just on like the individuals here? So for you, it sounds like a mixed bag. So it sounds like you had a, a pretty solid job, a steady paycheck and some security for at least a couple of years. Yeah. But then there's the folks in the community who may not have seen that sort of direct economic driver. So I think it depends on who you ask. Uh, so for the handful of us who did, I think, you know, I think I, I did belong to a kind of select handful of people who got really lucky in that they got the jobs in poker that they wanted. Um, so I think that if you want to talk in terms of the few, maybe a few thousand people from the Lehigh Valley and from beyond, because they brought in a lot of veteran dealers and they brought in a lot of supervisors who had worked in Atlantic City or maybe worked in Connecticut, California. Some of us got some good jobs. Uh, I know a lot of the people who I worked with have left. They've gone to other casinos or they've just, you know, I think there's a burnout point in poker dealing that if it's not, if you're somebody like me for whom poker is not really a, a, an already an interest in your life that you will burn out on it as I did. I got really, really sick of the job and quit. So when you quit, did you have something else lined up? No, actually, I, I, I had just quite literally come to the end of my tether. I, I can tell you, it's funny. I went to Maine for two weeks. We, my uh, girlfriend and I, she was my girlfriend at the time and still is, her family has a little cabin on a pond in Maine. And so it would be my, every year our vacation would be, we're going to spend a week or two at this place in Maine. So after coming back from a, two weeks in Maine, I was looking at, you know, doing another kind of, it'd be another year before I got another two weeks off. And I just thought, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm just so tired of it. And by that point, anyway, we had gotten to doing tournaments in the day. And so tournament tips were broken up the same way table games tips were for the poker dealers. So I was losing, I, I was making less money. I was also addicted to what was called the EO sheet. So when you came into work, there would be what was called an early out sheet. And uh, if anybody that I ever worked with ever hears this podcast, they'll, they'll relate to this. <laughs> this segment. So you'd put your name on this sheet and depending on the business demands after the first, I think I might've mentioned this to you in an earlier conversation. We, we were more or less running live poker games without interruption from June to Christmas of 2010. We only went down to like 11 tables around Christmas, but after the, after a year or two, you know, it really slacked off. So there'd be times during the day where you maybe only had a couple tables running so if your name was at the top of the early out sheet, they'd say, oh, well, we don't need that many dealers today. So we're going to look at this sheet and see who wants to go home and we'll send them home. So being that I wasn't crazy about this job, I would come in and work for maybe three or four hours and then get sent home on the early out. And I love that. I thought that was great. So, I mean, it cut into my income, yeah. but it, it made me happy. So <laughs> at the end of my, at the end of my brief career there, I had, 
I had been making a lot less money, but both because of the lack of, you know, cash games as opposed to tournaments and because I was always trying to get home early. So it really wasn't, you know, I, I was probably making about 15 an hour at that point. And I figured that, you know, for what this is costing me in terms of mental health and just hating it as much as I do, I, I went and just got a different job, a kind of just minimum wage, regular job. And it wasn't, it didn't pay as much, but I was happier and I, I wasn't living in the expensive apartment anymore. So it really worked out well. And in the meantime, you know, I went back to school later on and stuff. So I think I'm glad in the, in the long run that I made the decision I did. It was hard at the time, but I ultimately glad about it. Were you able to um, save any from your, from your time there? No, I, I, I've always been kind of bad with money. And it, what's funny too is when I think about, you know, my girlfriend and I will even joke about this is thinking about how, you know, there was a time when we had $10,000 saved up and just sitting around in our bank account from all this money I was making. And, you know, here I am now kind of a very typically broke college student. I do wish I did have something to show for it, but I don't. Do you think that's typical of a, of a yeah. lot of dealers that are there? I do. Yeah. I, I, especially from having pal around with a lot of them that, you know, it would have been, I think, a, one of the rarer types of people who didn't find a way to spend that money. And that, I think, has something to do with the stressful nature of the job is that, you know, if you are going to be doing something stressful and something that involves long hours and tedious work, that you are going to want to spend your money on sort of palliative activities or objects and, you know, things like that. So, you know, restaurants, drugs, you name it. I mean, anything that kind of makes your free time feel more feel like it balances the misery of having to work in, in, you know, also a dark and kind of smelly and smoky environment. Um, just, just a kind of, um, I would always make the joke that because the interior is designed with like the steel furnaces in mind, that it really just looked like hell because, you know, it's, it, there's flames, the, the, the aesthetic is one of like flames and smoke and red. And then the only, you know, all these people around who are like damned and miserable souls. So I, I, I kind of carried that image around in my head. Little, uh, Dante's Inferno. Yes, exactly. So thinking about that sort of question about the economics of it, how do you, do you see this model as sustainable for larger or larger than just for like the dealers? Do you see this model as something that's sustainable? Not really. Uh, And the reason I say that is because, you know, it comes in the place of say more productive industry, something like Bethlehem Steel. And if you, if you think about the fact that Bethlehem's not the only town that has lost its source of industry, that this is true of a lot of towns around here, and that if you just take the area that the Sands is expected to service into consideration, then you think, well, you know, and and this was something that you'd see play out, is that how long can these people keep coming back? You know, how long will it be before the Sands just gets it all? I mean, nobody's, I mean, in the long run, and this is, I think, one of the things that validates the casino as a business model, is that in the long run, it always wins. So in the long run, you know, the kind of people who are coming in on a regular basis, they're just going to be drained dry. And and we would see that, I saw this over the course of no more than three years, because I only worked there for a little over three years. So I saw people who started out, you know, playing maybe two, five, no limit and worked their way down to one, two, and then, you know, just started coming less and less because... I think that if you are given to the addictive aspect of it, especially that you will end up losing everything to it. And I, we would see this frequently. So I think that if you're going to replace industries with casinos that, you know, you can get some, you'll get some time out of it. And this is the way that some of the dealers would talk. They'd say, look, you know, you're, don't get too used to making the kind of money you're making now. And this is right at the beginning when we're killing it and we're, you know, we're in there for 14 hours straight. They said like, you know, in a couple of years, it's going to really slow down. 
And if you want to keep making this kind of money, you're going to have to keep moving around as casinos open up and hire new dealers. So that didn't sound appealing to me, but it also kind of drove home that point that, you know, we'll, the Sands maybe put a Band-Aid on some of the economic problems that, you know, came around as a result of the Bethlehem Steel going away. But I don't know that if in, say, 20, 25 years, you know, you'll still have, unless they really diversify, which I, I think, you know, you see things like ArtsQuest, and then there's these, this idea that they, they're giving a lot of the tax revenues back to projects in the town, that if those things can be, if they can be held accountable to those things and they'll do those things, that those will be good in the long run. But I don't know that the Sands itself will be here, you know, in 25, 50 years, or if a lot of these jobs that people had or have, that they'll really think, you know, because one of the things that I thought is that if you're not, if you're like me and you're not somebody who's really saving and thinking about the future, then you could really be destroyed by the slowing down of the business, or you could be destroyed by the uh, closing of the casino, and you'd have to go and do what other people that I knew there did, which is move and find another casino job as far away as Las Vegas. I mean, I, I worked with guys who things started slowing down at the Sands. They were like, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll look for something else. They end up all over the world, really. There were people who wanted really badly to go work at Macau uh, because the Sands had a had a really its flagship casino was there. That's where um, some inordinate percentage of their business is now. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons that they're selling the property. Sheldon Adelson, who was the owner, um, said right around the time we opened that if he had to do it over again, he never would have opened the Sands in Bethlehem, that it was really just kind of a money pit. But I, I think that he probably had occasion to think twice about that once the uh, table games were brought in. Because I think with just the slots, it really wasn't generating that much interest. And even with that, though, it's still something like, I think the number I've heard is it's 3% of their overall portfolio. Yeah. They did sell it, too, as I'm sure you know that it's going to be Wind Creek now. Yeah. Which is interesting. I jotted down a note here uh, from our conversation that said a camaraderie between dealers based on abuse. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So I, I think I gave the example of how one day it was, it had to be like three or four in the morning and I had been there since three or four in the previous afternoon. And I was leaning and they had some sofas in the middle of the poker room for players to sit on and wait for a table to open up. So I was leaning against one while I was doing chip running duties, which means that if a table needs a certain denomination of chips, you would go and cash its chips in and bring them the fill. And a, a manager came in at the very beginning of his shift. He was uh, the, the graveyard morning pit boss. And he saw me leaning against this sofa and he just, you know, what are you doing? Look alive, man. And he came out and he was like, and he kind of like said something snide to my supervisor about letting this guy lean against the, the couch. And it just occurred to me that like, you know, you probably ate dinner and then took a shower and then went to bed and then woke up and came into work all while me and the people around me were just doing this, were dealing poker this entire time. So it's like, you get the sense that like, they didn't even care that you were exhausted. They, they had no empathy for this fact. They just wanted you to be, you know, oh, and, and the shaving, there was this, there was this obsession with being clean shaven. So I would shave and then like, you know, by the next day I would kind of have a five o'clock shadow. I was, must've been written up like two or three times for that. And it was like, you know, you're going to work me 12, 13 hours a day. And then you think it's like my facial hair is going to affect my dealing? I mean, I understood that there was a kind of... An aesthetic. An aesthetic, right. But at the same time, it just felt petty. As, you know, especially after you'd been working so many long hours and so many for so many days straight, it felt like, I mean, you're looking for things to pick on. So we never, I mean, everybody had those problems too. So nobody really felt like, especially considering that it was the players who were giving you 
the the better part of your income, you you felt a natural loyalty to them that you didn't really feel toward your management. Your management was just kind of you know reminding you to shave, and making telling you you can't go home at the end of your shift. So that made it interesting when it came to say enforcing petty rules. There were, re- there were some really petty rules in, in poker that come back to the uh, Pennsylvania Gaming Board, and there are some house rules. So for instance, if you cross the line of play with a chip, that chip is committed to the pot. You must leave it. And there'd be people who did this accidentally and didn't want to make a bet or didn't want to make a raise, and, and you just had to hold them to it. And then suppose they win the pot. I mean, they'll, they're not going to tip you well, if, if at all. And then if you enforce the rules on somebody who felt really trivial about it, they may never forgive you. I mean, they may always remember you as, oh, that prick made me commit my $5 chip to the pot. Or if they use a word like fold or call without really meaning to, the use of the word is binding. So verbal is binding was kind of one of the you know, one of the cliches that was always coming up at the tables. So, you know, you'd always remember, well, verbal is binding. I'm sorry. You said, I'll see your hand. And then, you know, you can't say I'll see and raise. Once you say, I'll see, you're done. That's all you can do. And this, this was, this was intended to kind of keep people from like saying, I'll see your $25 and then watching for a reaction and then saying, and I'll raise this much. So they had thought this out and it was all in the interest, I think of a certain kind of fairness, but it also made us into the enforcers of really, you know, kind of arbitrary rules and that, that would alienate us from the players. And so there was always that. And I can actually think of a good example of where this camaraderie played out. And there was a woman who, who became pregnant before she had worked there long enough to have qualified for maternity leave. So the Sands management's position on her pregnancy was to tell her that you have to continue working as exactly as you are. You're not going to get any um, sort of special treatment. And, uh, you know, if you want to have your baby, you can just quit. And that was the kind of uh, the impression that we got. So the management, the lower management in the poker room itself said, okay, well, there's always got to be a chip runner. That's, you know, like I said, you'd go for a couple tables, then you'd run chips and that would, and then you could go back to a couple tables and go on break. So everybody kind of agreed that instead of running chips, they would let this woman have that job for the whole day because, you know, she's out to here with pregnancy, it's hard for her to even sit at the table and like do these hand motions and reach out to all the people who are throwing in cards and chips and, you know, do that. And in the meantime, the other thing that happened with her is that, okay, well, if she's going to run chips all day, she's only going to make her base wage. She's not going to get any tips. So what most of the dealers did is they would take her toke box to at least one table every shift and so her toke box would get taken to different tables and people would deal a, a, a whole table for her. And so the, the dealers themselves kind of came together and made sure that she would get through the pregnancy and keep her job and keep a, a, a kind of livable amount of money. And that impressed me with that, like, you know, here you have, here you have a company that looks at this woman as just a, a number and, and interprets, you know, her pregnancy in the most you know, utilitarian way possible and says, look, you know, you haven't been here for the proper amount of months in order to qualify for workman's comp or anything like that. But then the dealers and the supervisors themselves kind of came up with a way to help her. And I, I thought that was impressive and interesting where there is a will, there's a way, in other words. Just goes to show, though, you know, without those kind of regulations in place or without some sort of external pressure, it's falling on individuals to to find the the sort of gaps and yeah. fill in those gaps. Sure, absolutely is. Do you have any sort of final thoughts or like just lasting recollections of your your whirlwind three years as a casino dealer? It. I had occasion to uh, 
to think of it, you know, about a year after I quit, I got some text messages from people I hadn't even talked to in a long time because they had been old uh, dealing friends of mine and we just kind of lost touch with one another. And they said, you know, check your email and, you know, be on the lookout because there's been a, uh, somebody's hacked the SANS and, uh, you know, all of our information has been compromised, that there's been a lot of identity theft. And then I got this thing in the mail and, and it's true that my, I actually was one of these people, even though I had been gone for a few months at the time. There had been a hacking group that wanted to attack Sheldon Adelson about his political views. He's a well-known Republican donor. And, you know, for instance, the TVs in the break room were always on Fox News and this was non-negotiable. So when you're ever in the break room, you're being harangued at harangued with Fox News all day. But anyway, they had done this hack job where if you went onto the Sands website, you saw a world map with like mushroom clouds emanating out of various parts of it based on where Sheldon Adelson thought a nuke should be fired. And they said, um, I forget the line exactly. There was there was some kind of, you know, sanguinary condemnation. And then what ended up they what they ended up doing was finding all of the kind of personal details of poker room employees at the Sands and then publishing them. So if you Googled my name, you know, you'd see my email address, my date of birth and my social security number. I did this and I saw it right in front of me on Google. And I just, I, I remember thinking, wow, you know, I'm, I'm sure Sheldon is just devastated that, you know, my information has been leaked. So exactly. Kind of an interesting thing. But it, that was the kind of last little thing that I ever, you know, got out of it. And I've been back maybe once or twice just to look around and see how it's changed. But no, no, no real profound wisdom to, to proffer based on the, I mean, I'm glad to have had the experience. I wouldn't trade it. I, I think it was very instructive and interesting. I met a lot of neat people, but, you know, ultimately not something I'd want to do. I've been talking with Casey Keyes, a former poker dealer at Sands Casino Bethlehem. After leaving his job at the Sands, Casey has since returned to college to complete a history degree. Today's episode of The Gamble was produced by me, Kevin Kerner. Claire Silva and Jessica Munn provided community outreach and support. Our theme music is by Amari, who is also producing a full-length soundtrack for our film, Betting on Bethlehem, and who we'll get to talk to in an upcoming episode. Caroline Kelleher, Carrie Moffat, and Delaney McCaffrey lead our filmmaking team. The Gamble was recorded at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Want to find out more about the film? Follow us on social media. Search for the handle at BetOnBethlehem. Thanks for listening.